as we engage in this work, we have got to get comfortable with the uncomfortable nature of the work that we're doing. We're not simply advocating for students to score a certain grade on a certain assessment. We're advocating for them to have access to become autonomous learners. I'm Jim Knight, co-founder of the Instructional Coaching Group, and you're listening to Coaching Conversations, where I talk with coaching experts from around the world so that all of us can learn better ways to make an unmistakably positive impact on the people around us. Radical Learners is the latest PD development from Instructional Coaching Group founders Jim and Jenny Knight. Based on 25 years of research, this asynchronous platform provides learning at your own speed, unlimited viewing, and chat forums in a shared community space, all offered on an educator's budget. Content is outlined by chapter and then by lessons, allowing for learners to quickly and easily access answers when they need them. To learn more, visit RadicalLearners.com. I'm thrilled today to talk to a person who I've slowly gotten to know at the Teaching Learning Coaching Conference, and her positive energy uh, just rubs off on anybody, uh, everybody she encounters, including me. And I wanted us to have a chance to have a conversation, so I'm so grateful that we've set this time aside. I'm going to talk today with Dr. Ayana uh, Cooper, who's I think you're one of the world's leading experts on teaching English language learners and equity and how all those pieces come together. So would you be so kind as just to tell us a bit of your history and your background uh, with respect to working with English language learners? Sure. You are too kind. Thank you so much, Jim Knight, for inviting me into this space to uh, have conversation with you. Uh, I'm Ayana Cooper. I'm an educator, an advocate, an author. Uh, who really works hard to center linguistic diversity and multilingual students and uh, in, in all things that we do to support their educational trajectory. Uh, I'm an elementary teacher by trade, and I started teaching English learners because they were in my general education classrooms, and I was drawn to them and, and their, their uh, attempts to learn uh, both languages and content and learn how to do school and all the things. And I just became really um, interested in that work and experience. And I later pursued uh, licensure to to be an ESL teacher. Anything else you want to say about your background? Sure. So after several years teaching uh, ESL students, I had an opportunity to serve as an ESL instructional coach and began my work alongside school leaders and leadership teams. I've also had the opportunity to teach undergraduate students and serve on various research projects, again, with a focus on multilingual students. And so I have just been really fortunate to have uh, different roles and different opportunities to learn about the work from different angles, if you will. And so in the work that I engage in now, I piece those experiences together, if you will, to make sure that I am telling the most accurate story possible. And I Love think, it. yeah, it's really important to uh, be a storyteller as we engage in this work. Your book's called uh, Injustice for ELs, A Leader's Guide to Creating and Sustaining Equitable Schools. How do you see the relationship between equity and effective supports for English learners? You know, next year in 2024, or in 2024, we'll be celebrating um, and honoring the 70th anniversary of Brown versus the Board of Education. And so the work that we do on behalf of multilingual learners is 
really grew out of um, that landmark case and others like it. So when we talk about equity, we're talking about providing access, we're, pro we're talking about assuring inclusion, we're, we're talking about uh, the civil rights of, of all students, but especially those that are multilingual. And so until we come to terms with that and really acknowledge that, I'm, I'm concerned that the work will be uh, viewed as very isolated and siloed, right? So like we're not just doing this one practice over here. This is a mindset. This is a belief system around what our students bring to school with them, what they're capable of, and even more importantly, what the possibilities are for them. And so that's how I approach this work between equity and supports for students. It's very much framed around civil rights obligations. Before I move on, do you now use the term English learners, ESL, multilinguistic, multilingual? What, what do you think is the most appropriate term to talk about students who one already know one language and they're learning, learning another language? What's, what's the term you use today? Sure, sure. That's a great question. Um, I actually use uh, multiple terms, but I try to use the term most common in the context in which I'm supporting. Mm. That makes sense. So I work with different states, um, and, and that's one of the first conversations we engage in. What are the terms? What are the phrases that are most common here? What are you comfortable using? Um, with all due respect to acknowledging different terminology or different acronyms, it's important to remember I'm talking about and I am charged with supporting students who are eligible for language support services. So whether we refer to them as multilingual students, uh, bilingual students, emerging bilinguals, ESL students, what have you, it's still coming down to who are the students who are eligible for language supports or not. That's great. I, I have uh, recently, in the last year or two, tended to say multilinguistic. <laughs> Is it better to say multilingual? Or multilinguistic. I like the multilinguistic because I think sometimes people, they don't even know how to speak English. Well, they already know one other language. How many languages do you know is kind of the way I come from. I've got this person who already has one language. Now they're trying to master another. It's actually there. Sure. They've got more going on than some of it. So, so I, I go with multilinguistic, but it, do you think that's, I guess what you're saying is if it works in the context, it's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Because it's, it's important for us to norm on whatever phrases or terms or acronyms that we're going to use as part of our coaching relationship. So we definitely name it. Um, but again, yes, if that is what you're most comfortable with and accept it, absolutely, it's appropriate. So I grew up in Canada. I'm a dual citizen. And uh, in Canada, French and English are equal uh, languages. Uh, you have the right to have a court case in French even if you're in an English community, everything's bilingual. So you're going to see uh, French and English on any label you'll see in a store or on signs. And I feel as a Canadian, also an American, but I feel as a Canadian, I almost have a duty to learn French. I went to a bilingual uh, French university to try to learn French. And I can kind of get by. What I say is... Um, I can ask for what I want. I just don't know if I'm going to get it because I'm not really here, <laughs> great at hearing what they're saying. I know some people are really good at reading 
a second language, but not so good at speaking it. Sure. And I'm kind of, I don't know how well I speak it, but in my mind, I'm doing a really good job. But I can, but I, I feel like to some extent, I have a lot of empathy because I am a second language learner. I really would like to come fluent in French and I don't know, or I've got a long ways to go. You know, I'm really, really, really weak. So I'm very curious uh, to come to this kind of from the perspective of being the student. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think are some of the most important things educators need to do to support English learners or French learners like me. So I'm curious what you think. Sure, sure, sure. No, that's that's actually one of um, the exercises that I help, uh, that I pose to educators. Um, when you think about the four language domains, if you're bilingual, like in your case, English and French, you actually have eight. So you have proficiency in English, speaking, writing, reading, and listen, listening. And then you just named your levels of proficiency of French across speaking, writing, reading, and listening. Mm -hmm. So just an interesting paradigm when you think about language um, and language ability. So back to your question, what are some of the most important things educators uh, need to do to support uh, English learners or multilingual students, I'd first start with, here are some things that we need them to know, right? And so we've got to start with the place right. of knowledge, awareness, and understanding before we, we move into the action. And in different places and spaces, I've seen people stay in each one too long, <laughs> if you will, right? Mm -hmm. We can get caught in the space of, we have to learn a lot before we do, or we can get caught in the here's what we've been doing for a long, long time, and we're not sure if it's working, but we're gonna keep doing it. So both can be potentially dangerous. So one is that there should be some level of awareness of who are the students in front of you? Who are the students that you're teaching? And what is it that you need to know about them and their abilities in order to best uh, be their best instructor? So what that might look like depends on different contexts and different grade levels, right? So are we spending more time having those get to know experiences at the primary level and less at the secondary level or vice versa. So that would be important. It'd also be important to um, kind of think about their content that they're teaching um, as as something that is multi, you know, multifaceted in a way um, that how do we find out if students have knowledge of or experience with the content in their native language? Right here. Okay. So I might not necessarily be teaching you, for example, the life cycle of a butterfly for the very first time. I might be just teaching you those concepts in English, but a student could have vast knowledge of that already in their home language and have experiences with trying to communicate what they know in English. So I'm getting at this, students are not this blank slate. They're already coming to school with lots of funds mm -hmm. of knowledge and how are we providing access for them to share that with, with their teachers in their home language or in English. Right. Um, this is probably a related question, but what would you say are the characteristics of highly effective teachers of English learners? Yeah. So definitely they would be teachers who consider themselves lifelong learners, right? Mm -hmm. Teachers who are open to um, taking risks open to learning, open, opening, to, they're open to trying and kind of reviewing their, their, um, their practices with that critical lens. And so that they're brave teachers, if you will, right? People get really, really comfortable 
with their content. They may have um, you know years or decades of experience teaching. But multilingual learners are, are not the, the students of 20 years ago, right? And mm. so to release some of that um, can put teachers in a vulnerable place, right? So we're looking for teachers that are brave. We're looking for teachers that are comfortable being uncomfortable. We're looking for teachers that are lifelong learners. We're looking for teachers that are um, really seeking out different ways to do some of the things they've taught um, you know, for, for years, right? Like I've, I've taught this unit you know, for years, but the students that I'm teaching now, it's not landing the same way. So what do I need to do differently? What's another way I can approach this? And that's going to take some learning. You know, we work with a teacher, uh, one of our studies years ago, and, uh, <clears throat> this is a, she's just a fantastic teacher. And she, she really saw teaching as a form of social justice. If I give that's kids power, power that comes from knowledge and skills and, and big ideas that I'm going to help them be more. Uh, give them more access to the world. And uh, the teacher really wanted to be a good teacher and she worked with a coach in our project, Michelle Harris. And um, when she watched the video of the class, Michelle recorded the class for her. Teacher watched the video. We gave her a little tool to kind of self-assess the class. But when she looked at the video, she said, you know, my kids in my class who are learning English had seven students who knew Spanish really well. They were learning English. She said, not one of them answered a single question in class. Mm -hmm. That's so she so, hadn't really seen the kids until she watched the video of the class. Is that something that happens sometimes, I think, or what are your thoughts about absolutely, that? Absolutely. So imagine that lens of being to zoom out a bit, right? We're so entrenched in that we're doing this thing and here are all the pieces and this is the way we do it. And we have all of the, you know, things planned out. We've got it so planned, but until we kind of zoom out and have that wide lens, it may be landing for some, but it definitely may not be landing for all. And so she's so fortunate to have that opportunity to to change her practice. But imagine how many educators don't. Well, that's it. Yeah, the coach, I think, is a really key part of it. Um, in the case of that teacher, what they did is they tried one thing. They tried talking tokens so that each time a student talked, they would put a token. And uh, <clears throat> they used dominoes. And so every time a student was supposed to talk, they could put one of these dominoes, but it was seventh grade. The kids just played dominoes. It actually made it worse. So then they switched, they switched to think, pair, share, and they thought really carefully about what two students they would put together to pair so that kids were teamed up with students that they would learn from and that they would be comfortable with. Then the kids blew it away. It was a science class. They knew the content. They just weren't comfortable talking about it. And so the, the video plus the coaching from Michelle really made, really made a big difference. Yes, yes. And I would be thinking about when are we introducing whatever manipulative dominoes, chips, coins, whatever, early enough so they do have time for the play, right? Mm. Of being used to having this this manipulative here that's going to determine when they're contributing to the class or not. Um, so you're right. Like the earlier we can introduce those those pieces, then they become embedded in the practice. Yeah, I think that's exactly what Michelle said. She said, I feel like we should have spent more time up front getting the kids comfortable. <laughs> but their, their switch to the other strategy worked out. So it was good. There's a little clip where uh, the teacher says, um, what does it mean to these kids now that they can see they can do this? Because she's seen the kids are they're succeeding in class just by, by virtue of finding the right strategy. So I wanted to talk a little bit about administrators and a little bit about coaches and the difference between what they would look for. But what would you say an administrator should look for when they're observing teachers of English learners? 
Ah, so this is uh, an opportunity for administrators to first self-assess their own understanding of, mm. of the students that um, are being taught, their own understanding of the content, uh, the context of um, the course, the schedule, all of those things. So before we're looking for anything outside, it would be important to have some time to take a look at those variables that are very much influencing what's happening in those classrooms. And so that's some of the work that I've been doing alongside school leaders is really, yeah, you know, informally assessing their own depths of knowledge and then, you know, prioritizing based off where they're at on how they can, you know, build their own sense of understanding, but also support other teachers. And uh, part of that is through uh, observations for sure. Well, it seems to me like your work, correct me if I'm wrong here, but part of it is saying these conditions need to be in place. Here's kind of a standard for what we need to have. And then there's also coaching, which facilitates the, the creation of this. But you, I think you see an important sort of evaluative component of it and a coaching component of it. Is that fair to say where I'm most, off track, do you think? No, 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 most definitely, because that's the the, the balance between the where are we learning and, you know, spending time with our own um, areas of need or strengths versus moving on with a plan that says we've got to get in there and look for something, right? We've got to get in there. We've got to have a checklist or a tool or, mm. you know, a rubric, right? Like we can get so caught up in those spaces that we've missed the mark essentially for students. And so I had some conversations recently with school leaders. We were observing, I'm sorry, we were kind of taking a look at a tool that they had recently created um, to go in and, and observe instruction. And we had some some really good conversations around, you know, why is this included? Um, if it is included, why is it a yes or no checkbox? Is there yeah. opportunity to flesh out what you're seeing? Um, after this ob observation, what kind of questions would you be interested in discussing more with the teacher, right? And so I have one of the chapters of Injustice for L's is, is entitled, you know, conversations beyond the rubric. Because mm -hmm. I don't want us to get so stuck on a tool that we can't get to the robust conversations that need to happen before and after any um, classroom visits. So um, can you say more about what teachers need to know to effectively teach English learners? Maybe knowledge, skills, or concepts, anything related to, like if someone gets stuck with me in their class and I'm trying to learn French, <laughs> What would it be helpful if they if they knew about teaching? Sure. So so let's assume the teacher has spent some time assessing their own understanding. And they say, here are the things, you know, that I know really well, but I just can't seem to to really get much further in this particular area. I'd want them to tell me more about the students in their class. I want them to know the languages that mm. the home languages that the students bring with them. Um, I'd like to know according to their state's um, you know, definition of multilingual learner, what are the students eligible for? Are they eligible for language support services? Um, then we have measures of proficiency. What data points are we using to kind of measure growth and gains over time? So is Jim, uh, you know, for, for example, a level two or three um, French speaker? And what does that mean in relation to the content that you're teaching, Jim? One place where I've seen a number of um, teachers kind of get, uh, you know, stuck, if you will, is this idea of the need to differentiate, yes, but then our differentiation is really not different at all, 
So we have a set of pedagogical practices that they've learned and they're using those, but they're not getting the gains that they want. So for example, if we're supporting oral discourse, what does that look like? If we're asking students to write more in class, what does that look like? Um, and if those practices are uh, to surface, right, then we are providing Jim an opportunity to speak and write, but it may not be that right beyond Jim's ability to help move him along. So then we're just essentially maintaining Jim's level of French proficiency. We really haven't pushed him beyond. And so that's that area of coaching that I've engaged in the most with school leaders and teachers. How do we say yes to all these practices that you've learned, but are they the right practices for the students you have in front of you? So what I'm hearing, and see if I've got this right, is that uh, there can be strategies you would use as a teacher to help you be more effective in working with English language learners. But if the class looks the same every year, using the same strategies in the same way, that's not what you need. What you really need to know is know your students and then respond to the individual needs of the students. Your differentiation shouldn't, your differentiation should actually be differentiated. It shouldn't be the same thing all the time. Absolutely. If you, if you know your students and then you adapt your teaching practices to put the students in the best possible place for them to grow, then then you're doing what needs to happen. Is, does that sound right? It is. And I can further illustrate that with an example. Um, let's say this is something that I've been working on that we want to increase student discourse in class. And that includes speaking and writing. Um, we may say, let's, let's, start some journal writing at the at the beginning of each class. We're gonna start each class with open response journal prompts to help students uh, become better writers. Do those open journal response prompts stay the same yeah. or do they evolve over time? Because if they stay the same and they're not actually aligned with the assessments that we're going to, to have students engage in to measure growth and gain, then we actually haven't done the best job at providing access for students. Yeah, that's great. I think that's where it's, you know, I'm probably biased, but I'm focused on a book called Data Rules right now where we're looking at data and it seems to see every student is really, really an, an important. And then once you've seen every student, to have a repertoire of strategies you can use to provide the best, po given the complexities of teaching, the best possible learning experience for the students, not just the same thing every year, even though it's different. Hmm. That's really, really great. Um, we'll have to talk about that. I, I'd like to also add um, this piece. With multilingual learners who are eligible for support, one of the obligations is that students are making growth and gains over time. Uh, Each state sets their own criteria for what that is. You would be surprised at how many educators are not aware of that. They know it exists. There's something there. We give an annual English language proficiency assessment there's a score tied to students at a moment in time. We send them home, you know, because we we are mandated to do so. But that's a data point that's not making it back into the coaching cycle. And that's dangerous, right? Because we are not attending to this idea that students should be not only making growth and gains over time, but we're striving for proficiency in English and beyond. Or if they are fortunate enough to be in a state or a program that is uh, has a bilingual model. We are striving for bilingualism and biliteracy in two stage at proficiency and beyond. And and you know, like that's that's the part that needs to make itself back into the the coaching cycle for sure. Huh. 
What else would you say are some of the most important things teachers can do to support English learners? Maybe things even outside of the scope of instruction, but what are the things you think English teachers can do to support learners in addition to what sure. we've talked about? Sure. I, I, I know that it's important for, it would be extremely important for the, their teachers to uh, view themselves as um, advocates for students. Um, to be uh, more aware of a student's educational experience from a trajectory perspective, uh -huh. right? Like you're their eighth grade teacher for this year, but what were their experiences last year and what are we setting them up for going into ninth grade? Yeah. How within their teaching and learning communities um, are they actually helping to educate other teachers, right? So like, is it, are there times built in for teachers to have conversations around the students that they're serving? Are there opportunities for teachers to talk about what's working for students um, and like, you know, bringing in that school-wide perspective? This is so helpful. Uh, I've been, uh, again, working on this book, Daily Rules, but mm -hmm. one of the things we talk about is interviewing students, asking them about their learning experiences. And you probably can't interview every student, but the coach could interview, say, 20% of the class and ask the kids about... Um, their previous experiences, their current experiences to learn more about where the students are and or the coach can teach the class so the so the teacher can do the interviews. And then we have a thing called a close watch where the class is taught by the coach and the teacher looks at each student and tries to understand what's the student need and what's the student learning and how do I feel about the student and where do my feelings come from? And then take time, spend a few minutes just watching each student in the class when you're teaching, you're so busy doing all the things you don't notice. So it seems to me one of the things they could be looking for would be the unique needs of all students, but particularly kids who are learning English. It's very, very interesting. Um, what else would you like to share about justice for English learners? I'd like to go back to your, uh, your point around interviewing students. I'd like to ask educators how they think they're doing in regards to creating autonomous learners. That's what this is really about, mm. right? How do we right. help create autonomous learners? Uh, we talk about college and career readiness standards, but ultimately I need to help you learn how to learn for yourself, right? That's a life skill. Mm -hmm. This makes me think of a time when I had an opportunity to uh, work alongside a school leader who was uh, charged with creating some new programs at, at her school. And she did bring together focus groups of, of, of students. These were secondary mm -hmm. level newcomer students. And some of the things the students said were just so profound. Mm -hmm. Send you a link to the article because it was published. Um, and they said things like they wanted to work more independently. Mm -hmm. They wanted to... Um, not have as many scaffolds. Yeah. They said that they wanted the teachers to speak in English to them. Uh. They said, my favorite one was a student who said, teach us how to be the boss. Yeah. School, school teaches us how to be workers. And I thought, that's a future entrepreneur. Right. Also autonomous. Yes. So I want to send you that article um, just as a reference because it was right there. Here's what students said they wanted from their learning experiences. Where are we in that? Where are we in that process? 
And and I and, and let me, you know, let me counter counteract that with everything may not be in our control, but we are in control mm-hmm. of our of our classrooms. And if so, if that's your learning community and that's your teaching and learning environment, you very much are um, have a lot of control. And so like that's what I want teachers to center on. That's very interesting. I when I talk about coaching, I talk about coaching is about now and it's about not yet. And not yet is what the person's going to grow into. And you have to be careful that you're coaching now. If you solve their problems for them, you're really going to inhibit their growth into the not yet, into the future. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're saying about students. If we could if we provide too many scaffolds, we're actually inhibiting the kids' ability to grow. That's that's really fascinating. Anything else you'd like to say about your work working with English learners? And I've got a couple, one final question sort of about coaching, but have we missed something important? It's important for us to take a look at current events and the state of of affairs. And we are not, you know, schools are not, um, you know, these isolated places, right? And so right now there are states that are receiving uh, high numbers of um, newly arrived students, right. high numbers of students who have interrupted or limited formal school. And so they're showing up in places and we're placing them by age and what their grade would be, but clearly there could be some gaps um, in their in their knowledge. We're also, you know, working with places that have displaced families or multiple or or unaccompanied minors. And so, it's it's important that we are acknowledging current events, acknowledging what's in our um, ability to control and what's not, and also you know being mindful of reaching out to other experts um, that can help you. So, are there school social workers that you might want to make sure you have a relationship and rapport with if you need to refer families for other supports? Are there guidance counselors? Um, are there community service agencies that your school is partnering with? This is not a, um, you know, one-stop uh, experience for students and families, and so, so sometimes it can feel overwhelming to meet all of their needs. And I just want to make sure I'm naming that um, it would be important to reach out and build rapport and relationships with other educators or agencies that can be part of the student experience as well. I'm so grateful for. Everything you shared, Dr. Cooper. The last question I have is, what are three really practical questions, moves, ideas you'd like to share that coaches, doesn't have to be three either, that's just kind of an arbitrary number, but what are a couple either questions, moves, ideas you'd like to share that coaches can use to be more effective in in this area? Sure, sure, sure. Well, I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to kind of talk about some that people say really resonate with them. And so perfect. Um, the first is, you know, keeping um, like, I really want to affirm the work that we're doing is framed around and is still part of civil rights obligations for students. Mm-hmm. I know we don't wake up every morning and say, I'm going to violate a student's civil rights today. I need to make sure I get two violations done before lunch, right? Like, mm-hmm. But he does that. But these things are happening and they happen over and over again. They happen because nobody is aware or this is the way we've always done things. And so as we engage in this work, we have got to get comfortable with the uncomfortable nature of the work that we're doing. 
We're not simply advocating for students to score a certain grade on a certain assessment. We're advocating for them to have access to become autonomous learners. So I think that's one thing. The other, number two would be take stock and take some assessment of the pedagogical practices that you're using. And going back to, are these really the most important? Are these the most robust practices that I have? And if not, what do I need to do? I always say and often have said and try to say, remind people, students, with all due respect, students cannot turn and talk their way to proficiency. We're talking about creating bilingual, biliterate adults. And so if our practices are not working, we need to find some new ones. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. It makes us become better practitioners. And number three, it would be what data points are we using, right? And so when we talk about using data, data-driven instruction, data-informed practices, too often that data that is affirming or at least measuring growth across various literacies isn't included for our students. And that and that's unfortunate for us because that's a data point that we have to bring back to the center. We need to um, make sure we're informed and know where that data is going. And oftentimes that's part of how schools and districts are assessed on their ability to say they're doing right by students. And so we've got to we've got to grapple with that more than we've done in the past. This is really great. It's got me thinking about so many things around. I don't know what the the professional use of knowledge. I mean, uh, uh, you develop a repertoire of strategies. You keep updating your skills and learning more and more. You you learn about your students so that you can pick from your repertoire of strategies to use what's most appropriate. You monitor progress, see your kids, provide the supports. That's uh, not just limited to English learners. I think I think it's the whole the whole thing. But I think there are particular knowledge. There is particular knowledge you need to have, and um, certainly uh, starting with the knowledge of your students. It sounds like that's the really really critical part. Anything else you'd like to say? It's really been wonderful talking with you. I am just so. Um honored to have time with you. Thank you much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm happy to follow up with any resources or articles or anything else I can um, provide to help uh, your listeners with, with uh, more insight into supporting multilingual students. So grateful. Well, I'm sure we'll share your, the connections back to you and people can come see you at TLC in New Orleans next year too. That's the thing I wanted to, I want to stress. <laughs> It'll be great. Thank you. Can't wait to meet them. All right. Thank you so much. And um, I'm just so grateful for the conversation. It was a super helpful for me. So thank you. Thank you. Me as well.